0: On August 10, 1994, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 78-year-old Leonard Jones and 27-year-old Michelle Brooks sat in a parked car when one male blocked the passenger door and another demanded that Jones get out before shooting and killing him. The two males fled. Michelle Brooks initially chose 16-year-old Johnny Berry from a photo lineup, but when she rescinded that ID at a preliminary hearing, the charges were dropped. Within a few weeks, Johnny was inexplicably rearrested for the crime of which he had just been cleared, and while in juvenile detention, he met 15-year-old Tahid Lloyd, who admitted that he was one of the two attackers in the Jones killing, but when he wouldn't agree to clear Johnny's name, the two boys fought. Lloyd was later arrested on an unrelated charge, and a gun in his possession was linked to the Jones murder. However, Lloyd mistakenly believed that Johnny had implicated him and as retribution, falsely named Johnny Berry as his accomplice and Jones's shooter. At trial, Michelle Brooks's testimony was shaky at best, but with Lloyd's testimony, Johnny was convicted and sentenced to life without parole. Years later, Lloyd admitted his lies, but at a hearing when the prosecution threatened to charge Lloyd with perjury and retry him for the murder, Lloyd refused to officially recant. It took a slew of Supreme Court rulings on juvenile life sentences and a review by Philadelphia's Conviction Integrity Unit to finally set Johnny Berry free after nearly 25 long years behind bars. This is Wrongful Conviction.
1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. VTW void report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal
0: trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast
3: from the Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
0: Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your host, Jason Flom, and this episode is probably going to mess with your perceptions of justice. I mean... There are so many things wrong with this case. You're going to feel like you need a chiropractor from your head spinning around. It's an incredible story of an incredible man named Johnny Berry. And it goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court decisions, to lying witnesses, and a corrupt system that really ignored what should have been absolutely crystal clear from day one. So without further ado, Johnny Berry, welcome to Wrongful Conviction.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Jason.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I'm so sorry you're here because of what you had to go through, but I'm obviously, on the flip side, I'm super happy that you're free and out and have been totally exonerated and vindicated and are now living your best life. So, okay, what was your life like before all of this insanity?
2: Growing up in Philadelphia, West Philadelphia, life was simple. It was fun. I am the eldest of five children. My father was active member in the military. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. We were poor, definitely didn't have much. But what we did have was love, dedication to one another, and we did our best to make things work. It sounds like people living that kind of life
0: all over the country, right? Just struggling to get by day to day, but having good parents and lots of love in the household. And so you were 16 years old at the time of this horrible crime, when on August 10th, 1994, Leonard Jones, who was 78 years old, and Michelle Brooks, who was just 27, were sitting in a van in the Parkside neighborhood of Philadelphia, when two very young men approached the van, right? One of them blocked the passenger side door from opening, preventing Michelle from getting out. And then the other one approached Mr. Jones with a handgun and yelled at him to get out. But... Before he could even comply, don't forget, he was not a young guy, 78 years old, he was shot and killed. And then both of the men fled. And before we dive into the investigation, it's important to note that you, Johnny, had had some brushes with the law
2: prior to this. Is that right? Yes. Unfortunately, yeah. I was specifically involved with, and I'm not proud of, the selling of drugs and things of that nature. Right. So you
0: weren't exactly a choir boy, but that also doesn't make you a murderer. And it is relevant, though, because it means that you were known to the police. And so as the investigation got underway, Michelle Brooks, the 27-year-old woman from the van, she described the man who had held her door shut and said he had a chipped front tooth. And then police showed her a photographic lineup, and from that lineup, she picked you. And at that time, you did have a slightly chipped front tooth. So police arrested you, but on August 31st, 1994, Michelle Brooks came to the preliminary hearing. And when she saw you, she told police that you were not the person who had held the door shut. You're just not the guy. So naturally the charges were dismissed and you were freed. And that should have been the end of it for you right there, you know, but a few weeks later, you were rearrested for the same crime and sent back to juvie. So Johnny, this is crazy, right? I mean,
2: fill us in. Do you have any idea why they rearrested you? I have a theory. It was a time period where Philadelphia was being plagued with crime, and politicians and public officials were like, their feet held to the fire, like, hey, we got to do something about this. I was a known individual to authorities. I was in the streets. I was involved with gang activity. I sold drugs. And I believe that the police specifically honed in on me. They had me. They didn't have another individual at that particular time, and they wanted me, and they were stuck on me. And that's why we don't have any or never came up with any type of evidence as to why I was rearrested.
0: Yeah, I guess that's not completely out of the realm of possibilities. It was Philadelphia in the 90s, after all, when both crime and police misconduct were just rampant. I mean, but what happens next is even crazier. So there you are, back in juvenile detention. And you hear about a 15-year-old kid named Taheed Lloyd who had been in juvie on an unrelated charge during your last short stint. Now, he was still there, and some guys went ahead and told you what he had said after you had left the last time.
2: Yeah, so I was incarcerated in the juvenile facility. And once there, the individuals who were there and had been introduced to me, so to speak, from my time prior... The whole thing was, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you back? And I'm like, I have no idea. They say, okay, well, by the way, do you know this guy over here, indicating Tahi Lloyd? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't know him. never met him before. You know, what's up with him? They're like, hey, when you left, he told us that he and his friend had committed the murder, and not you, and that you really didn't do it. So hearing that, I approached him, and I was like, hey, I'm hearing that you had something to do with this homicide that I'm here for. I didn't do it. You know I didn't do it. Can you help me with it? His exact words to me was, I know who did it, I didn't do it, but I'm not saying anything. And at that point I said, Oh, you're not saying anything. Oh no, you bought this. We got into a physical altercation. We started to fight. And the officers in that vicinity came and they broke the fight up, separated us, but we had bad blood between us from that point on. Because I was so bent on, man, I'm in this freaking hellhole for something you and your friend or whoever it was did, and I'm not supposed to be here. And do you remember, did Lloyd have chipped teeth like the witness Michelle Brooks had mentioned? Tahi Lloyd had a very, very identifiable two-front chipped teeth that could have actually taken the tip of your pinky finger and stuck it through that chip in the front of his two teeth.
0: Well, I don't know that anybody in your situation would have acted any differently. I mean,
2: you got every reason to be
0: angry and to want to try to do what you could do in that situation to extricate yourself, right? And here's this guy who holds the key and he's right in front of you. And then he actually turned in the complete opposite direction. What I'm talking about is Lloyd was arrested several months later and they found him in possession of a handgun that was linked to the murder. Ballistics confirmed this. And he thought that you had implicated him because Mm -hmm. you had known that he had done it from the talk inside the prison. And so he went ahead and implicated you in the crime, almost like street justice or something like that. Right. And as happens in these cases, time and time again, he agreed to plead guilty in exchange for a 15 to 37 year sentence for a murder that he did commit. So he saved himself from a life sentence in exchange for lying and presenting false testimony against you. Well, now what happens next is predictable, right? You get charged with murder, robbery, conspiracy, and possessing instruments of crime. So now you're facing the worst imaginable scenario. What was going through your mind when you found out you were being charged with all these terrible crimes?
2: When I realized that I was being charged for this murder and that he was bearing testimony against me, I was horrified. I still remain optimistic that I was going to Go to trial and beat the case, because I didn't do it. And so let's go to the trial.
0: So this is September 1995. He had already spent a year in jail awaiting trial, right? And then Michelle Brooks. So Michelle Brooks, remember, was the witness who was in this vehicle at the time of the murder. Now, her testimony was conflicting and confusing. She identified you as the person who held the door shut during the robbery, but then she also identified you as the gunman which, of course, they couldn't both be true. And she also said that she had told the police previously that you weren't involved in the crime. And then she restated that in her testimony. So if I'm on the jury, I'm going, wait a minute, there's three totally different stories here. But I think the nail in your coffin, so to speak, was that Lloyd testified saying that you and he had committed the crime. He knew full well who had committed the crime with him. And that guy, his actual co-conspirator, remained on the streets as a result of them taking you in his place. So who was your attorney, and did they mount any kind of a defense for you?
2: My attorney at the time was Donald Michael Padova. I will say that he did his best. He was court-appointed, overworked, underpaid, and he tried his best to save this young boy's life. And there was so much that he could have done with a so-called co-defendant who pointed the finger and said, hey, yeah, I was a part of this crime, but he done it with me. Give me a deal, you know? So
0: predictably, you were convicted of murder, robbery, possessing instruments of a crime and conspiracy, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. What was that awful moment like when the jury came back in with the verdict?
2: When I was convicted and they handed down that life sentence, tears came down my eyes like a baby. I looked back at my mother at the time who was living and I cried because I couldn't believe that the system had failed my family and my community and me. And at that point, I just felt absolutely helpless.
0: This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and by Accenture, a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Working to reform the criminal justice system is a key pillar of the AIG Pro Bono program, which provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. As part of Accenture's commitment to racial and civil justice, Accenture's legal access program provides pro bono legal services in partnership with more than 40 organizations, bringing meaningful change to people and communities worldwide.
2: When I first got to prison, they sent me to state correctional institution, Gratiford. That place was like another world. I was 18 at the time. When I first entered Greater Ford, it was like hallways full of people, full of people, like clothes, jewelry, loud. And I thought, who are all these people? Wow, there's a lot of counselors that work here. Because I saw very few people who had on the state-issued clothing. Well, what it was were all inmates. And at that particular time, we were allowed to wear our street clothing. So the hallways was filled with inmates or residents, as I like to call them. At that time, prison was a lot more ran by the residents more so than it is now. At that time, the residents had more control over the institutions. And there was a lot more liberties, more freedom. It was more volatile than it is now. But on the other hand, it had like a balance to the place. The residents kind of ran it but they maintained a balance. So people didn't just do anything. You know, there were checks and balances. If you've done something, you know, administration kind of worked hand-to-hand with some of the residents, and we kind of figured it out. That didn't mean that some stuff didn't happen sometimes, but it was a lot more easier. And I'm telling you, five, six, seven years went by like nothing. So six, seven
0: years later, 2002, after your convictions had already been upheld on appeal, you received a letter that must have rocked your world. Tell us about that.
2: I received under the door in my cell a recantation letter from Tahi Lloyd, basically saying, hey, here's a long-awaited piece of information that you've been waiting for. He wanted to come clean, wanted to clear my name. And so he did that. He talked about the fact of him Having known me prior to being incarcerated at the juvenile facility, he talked about his incentives or motive for lying, and he also saw it as a means to receive less time. And I do remember that he was pretty insistent on he wasn't recanting for me. He more so was concerned about my mother and things of that nature. So for me, it was like a bittersweet sort of thing at the time because I was so elated. I was so blown away by... Receiving that recantation, but at the same time, I was dealing with the loss of my mother. That was hard, you know. I don't really talk about that. Yeah, that's um, it's hard to imagine
0: being stuck inside and getting the worst news that you could get like that. And what a crazy whirlwind of events, right? You you get that worst news, and then you get this letter that you probably been maybe not even allowing yourself to hope would come, but it came. So this guy who had literally put you in prison for the rest of your life, not only sent this letter, but he also signed an affidavit under oath saying that he had falsely implicated you because he thought that you had told the prosecution about Lloyd admitting in the juvenile detention center that he had taken part in the crime. So then your lawyer, Robert Gamberg filed a post-conviction petition for a new trial and was granted a hearing. Now, he had collected... A significant amount of evidence to defend your innocence, like statements from two different people who were in the juvenile detention center back in 94 who overheard Lloyd say that he was going to falsely accuse and implicate you. And this lawyer, Gamberg, obtained a statement from a prison inmate, Bryant Miles, who said that Russell Q. Wilson admitted that he and Lloyd had committed the crime and that Lloyd was the gunman. Bingo, right? This is powerful stuff. This is where it takes a crazy turn. In 2007, Lloyd was prepared to testify via a video conference, but the prosecution had some dirty tricks. A DOA prosecutor threatened to charge Lloyd with perjury and retry him for the murder if he persisted in his recantation. And the judge conducting the hearing became concerned that Lloyd was opening himself up to a perjury prosecution, which he was. So he appointed a lawyer to represent Lloyd and continued the hearing. And then the prosecutor got just what they wanted, right? The hearing resumed in 2008, but Lloyd took the Fifth Amendment and you were sent back to prison. What a freaking turn of events that is. And just so people understand, if he had lost, if they had gone and done what they said they were going to do and followed through on their threat, he could have gone back to prison for the rest of his life instead of 15 to 37. Am I right?
2: Yeah, because that was part of his agreement with the district attorney's office, is that it turned out that he testified falsely, perjured testimony, anything like that. The deal is off the table, and he would have been prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But the problem with that is, as I see it, the district attorney's office in Pennsylvania, they have immunity. And so when they utilize his agreement as a threat to him, which it was, It takes away the power of the balance of justice and the scales of justice. Because now, even though he wanted to do the right thing and tell the truth, he's precluded from doing that because it's like, hey, I'm not going to go to jail in exchange for helping this guy to get out. They didn't leave him any real room to do the right thing. And the district attorney who were instrumental in seeing to it that he pled the fifth, their feet aren't held to the fire or anything like that because they have immunity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Here's this guy, Lloyd, who finally found his moral compass or his some kind of courage to come forward and tell the truth. And the prosecutor's like, nope, we don't want the truth. Yep. We're not interested in no kind of truth. We're happy the way things are. And this takes us to February of 2018. So now you've been in for, what, 23 years?
2: Yeah, approximately, yeah.
0: And so there have been a number of Supreme Court decisions in the past couple of decades that have had a significant positive impact on juvenile justice. And I want to just break those down for a second. They include that back in 2005, Roper versus Simmons, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional for juveniles. And then in 2010, with Graham versus Florida, the U.S. Supreme Court invalidated life without parole sentences for juveniles in non-homicide incidents. In 2012, in Miller versus Alabama, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that mandatory life without parole sentences imposed on juveniles were unconstitutional in all cases. And then, in 2016, in Montgomery versus Louisiana, the U.S. Supreme Court made the holding they made in Miller retroactive. And so, due to that very ruling, you received a reduced sentence that made you immediately eligible for parole. And Common Pleas Court Judge Barbara McDermott said- I love her.
2: Fantastic. You love her, right? (laughs)
0: Love her. Fantastic. (laughs) And Judge McDermott, if you're listening, we're sending you a big shout out and our respect for having done what you did. It's important that we recognize when people in positions of power do what's good and right. So she noted that you could, quote, continue to fight on the street instead of in prison. End quote. She meant, of course, fight to prove your innocence. But on August 14th of 2018, you finally came home. What was that like when you just walked out the door? Was there a big crowd to meet you? What did you do?
2: Oh, man. Well, at the time, there was one very uh, significant, very special person there. They meet me as my wife. She was right there. I walked out with a box in my hand, gave her a big hug, and I kind of like trotted as fast as I could into the direction away from the prison. Because in my mind, I felt like at any moment they're gonna say, hey, Johnny, listen, we made a mistake, man, you gotta come back. So I wanted to get the hell out of there. <laughs> she said, hey, man, you moving kind of quickly. And I'm like, well, you know, if you want to get with me, you better come on. But yeah, man, for me, that moment was like a breath of fresh air in a burning building. I felt like I had absolutely won when I walked out those doors and I got in that car, with those prison attire on, and we drove down that road.
1: I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico, Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from
3: the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. No purchase necessary. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers, and I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from the Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
0: Let's not forget that even though you were free, you weren't really free, right? You were still a convicted murderer. Yeah. And all the things that go with that. But in another good turn of events, there was a new DA in town. His name was Larry Krasner. And Larry Krasner was a friend of mine, a great man. He had by this time established one of the most robust conviction integrity units run by Patricia Cummings in the country. And they reviewed your case and they found all the statements that corroborated your innocence. And so June 24th, 2019, less than a year after you were freed, all the convictions were vacated and all the charges were dismissed. How did that feel?
2: Well, let me start off first by saying to Patricia Cummings, phenomenal woman, and to like Krasner, shout out to them, virtual hugs. I love those two individuals. I love the work that they are doing. I take my hat off to them. On that particular day where I was exonerated, first, it took about maybe 15 minutes. The judge said a few words. She told me I was exonerated. I accepted it. And the court went on with its normal daily proceeding. And I'm like, wow, 23 years and some change versus 15 minutes. And I walked out of the courtroom a free man. I just felt like I got me back. I felt empowered. And I felt like I could then begin my new life.
0: And the ADA, Tom Gata, actually told Judge McDermott that had the prosecution allowed Lloyd to testify at the post-conviction hearing in 2008, Without the threat of being prosecuted for perjury, you would have been granted a new trial. Those are powerful words that you don't hear often enough from people like him.
2: Yep. I actually know him very well. Very, very decent person with courage beyond description. So I'm glad that he has been an addition to that office and changing the trajectory of the way in which that office had been running for past 30 or some odd years. Amen to that as
0: well. And so as many villains as there are in this story, it feels like there's almost an equal number of heroes. And I'm glad we're recognizing them here and now. And then in August of 2019, you filed a federal civil rights lawsuit seeking damages from the city of Philadelphia. And I have to say, In all the years I've been doing this work, one of the questions that I'm asked the most is people, they always want to know, did the person who was wrongfully convicted, like surely they got compensation, that millions of dollars and like an apology, right? And unfortunately, that's not what happens in far too many of these cases, actually in the large majority of these cases. And yours is one of them. Am I right?
2: Yeah, actually, a lot of cases do not become successful on civil wrongful conviction suit. They just aren't successful. And it's a year after year process fighting tooth and nail to be compensated. So Pennsylvania is
0: one of the states that doesn't have a compensation statute. You know, and the Innocence Project has been leading the charge to pass compensation statutes and laws around the country. I think there are now 32 or 33 states that have them. Even then, they vary widely, and some of them provide very, very little, no matter what you went through. But Pennsylvania doesn't have a law. And so you haven't received any compensation whatsoever for your 23 years in prison?
2: No. Civil lawsuits are still on the way. But as far as the state saying, hey, look, we apologize, we acknowledge you've been wrongfully convicted, and as a gesture of you being able to get on your feet out here, no, that hasn't happened.
0: Well... Listen, hopefully it's not too far off and hopefully you will be successful in one of these civil suits. You definitely deserve it. In the meantime, though, I'm happy to say that you have welcomed a baby boy into
2: the world, right? Yep, that's my baby boy. His name is Yusuf. He's just turned two. He's so advanced, man, and so smart. That's awesome. That's a
0: beautiful scene. And you have a cleaning business now as well, right?
2: I work alongside of another individual and what we do is we can clean commercial and residential properties, and then we also do clean outs. So if individuals want like debris and things like that moved and then sent to the dumpster and things like that, we do our best to provide that service.
0: And so, Johnny, for people who are listening out there who are wanting to help, and we know how expensive it is raising a little kid, is there a way that people can reach out to you about your cleaning business if they're in the Philadelphia area or for you to make a speech to help? you know, to help cover your expenses while you're waiting for what we hope will be a successful outcome of a civil case eventually. Is there a way for people to contact
2: you? You can contact me directly. My email is my name backwards, Barry Johnny 1111 at gmail.com. All
0: right. So if anyone can help, has the ability to help and is willing to help, please go to the link in the bio. We're going to have Johnny's contact info there to help Johnny and his family. Of course, now we have the part of our show that I love the most, and I think our audience does too. We call it, of course, Closing Arguments. And Johnny, here's how it works. It's very, very simple. First of all, I thank you again for being here with us today, courageously sharing your insane story and your experience in the service of others. And now I'm just going to kick back, turn off my microphone, leave my headphones on, and of course, leave your microphone on so you can share with us. Any other thoughts that you want to impart to our large and growing audience?
2: Thank you for having me, and I do appreciate being here. The one thing that I'm focusing on right now here in Pennsylvania is hopefully getting the legislatures to realize the importance of enacting a law which would allow for parole eligibility for people who are serving life sentences and deserve to see the parole board. I think it's important for a number of reasons. One, because to me, if you really do the numbers, it's cost efficient. It costs about an upwards of maybe 37 to $40,000 to house an inmate annually. And if the inmate or resident is geriatric or in some other type of state where they need assistance, it can run you in upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's cost efficient. Also, if you really look at the statistics, For an individual who has been commuted after serving a life sentence or has been pardoned or has been released on parole or some other type of situation like that, the recidivism rate for that type of individual is less than 1%. So statistics have shown that these type of individuals, this class of people, mostly do not reoffend. The statistics show is less than 1%. So I call on the legislature, I call on their constituents, It makes sense, man. Do the sensible thing. Enact a legislation to say parole eligibility. That means an individual would have a chance to see the parole board and then leave it to the parole board to make that decision based on that individual's case and then also what that person has been doing while incarcerated. And I put that number at maybe 25 years. So that's what I would say, man. Support a bill for parole eligibility.
0: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three time Oscar nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction, on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast, and on Twitter at wrongconviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at it's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One.